So hello and welcome to Talking Moves, a podcast from Greenwich Dance, where dance artists come together to talk about their work and practice, the things that matter and the issues which move them. I'm Melanie Precious, and in this episode, I'll be talking to two artists about their transition from stage to leadership. The topic was inspired by listener, Laura, who got in touch to ask for some support as she sought to make a similar career change from performance into management. She felt frustrated as she navigated the unfamiliar terminology, the high expectations and low pay of a sector she knew so well from one angle, but less well from another. Did she really, she asked me, need to start right back at the beginning? So today I'm going to be asking two inspirational leaders and ex-performers about the journey they've taken and the skills they've picked up along the way. I'm joined by Kath James, Artistic Director at Southeast Dance and former dancer with Siobhan Davis Dance and Ron Bear, amongst others, and Kenneth Olumuayas-Tharp, OBE, Freelance Arts and Culture Consultant and former dancer with London Contemporary Dance Theatre and Arc Dance Company. Welcome both of you, thanks for joining me. So this question about what one does after performing comes up so much for dancers because of the nature of the work and the famously early retirement age. But before I ask you about that transition, I wondered if you could just give us a really quick potted history of your career from performer to where you are now. Kat, would you like to kick us off? Well, I started quite late. I didn't go to dance college till I was 20 and then graduated two or three years later joined a, a dance company in Brisbane called Expressions Dance Theatre that has recently renamed to Australasian Dance Collective. And then I went to Dance North, which is in Townsville, up in the tropics, and was there for a few years before then heading overseas to expand my horizons. And I landed up at Rombear when Richard Alston was director there. So I stayed there for quite a number of years before then moving on to Siobhan Davies Dance Company, where I stayed for 12 years. And I think during my entire career right from when I started at college, if there wasn't an opportunity to dance, I would make one, I would find one. So even while I was at college, in the evenings, I would get a gang of girls together and we would rehearse and then we would perform in nightclubs and open fashion parades. Or We ended up on Saturday morning <laughs> jukebox on Channel 7 every week, dancing to music that hadn't got a video. I mean, this was back in the 80s when videos weren't big. So yeah, I was always looking for that opportunity. I think during off times when we would have a summer break with Siobhan Davies Company, again, two or three girlfriends would get together and we formed Snag Collective and ended up presenting work at the South Bank Centre. And this was all done with me as a dancer and basically learning producing on the job, really. You know, you learn how to ring up venues, yeah. you learn how to talk to them, you learn how to make deals, you learn how to do everything on the job. So I had no formal training in that transition from dancer to producer. It was all sort of interwoven into my career and um, I stepped... Yeah off stage when I was about 42 I think I'd had a number of injuries and then my third pregnancy ended up in a miscarriage I think I took quite a number of months off completely after that to recover and I think that's when I made the transition into producing properly so I became company and tour yeah. manager at Siobhan Davies and from there went on to director at Take Art in Somerset and then from there to Southeast Dance, where I'm now artistic director. So yeah, no formal training. I didn't do any MAs in producing, nothing like that, I'm afraid. I went to University of Lived Experience, so. <laughs> <laughs> the best university. <laughs> Kenneth, how about you? Oh, thank you, Melanie. And it's great to hear Kathy's journey summed up so neatly there. I started dancing much earlier. 
I started dancing at the age of five with classical ballet. I was living in Glasgow at the time in Scotland. Actually, we've moved there when I was a few weeks old. So I started life as a Glaswegian. Ah, and, um... Somebody else has entered the room. <laughs> exactly. I was the only boy, of course. I'm not claiming to be Billy Elliot, though. At seven and a half, we moved south to Cambridge and it took me six months to lose my Glaswegian accent. Apparently, the last two words to go were we, which means small, and hoose, which means house. But I still feel like an honorary Scot. I like to think I can slip back into what we call my Glasky patter. I was lucky enough in that transition to find, in the move to Cambridge, a very, very good and very well-respected Russian ballet teacher. And I mean, she wasn't someone teaching Russian classical ballet. She was a Russian teaching Russian classical ballet. And um, she had a very good reputation and sent people off into companies, etc. I made the switch at 18 from classical ballet to contemporary dance when I went to train at the place, as it was called then the London School of Contemporary Dance, now London Contemporary Dance School. And on graduating from that company, I had a few brief months with Janet Smith and dancers. Janet went on to um, lead Scottish Dance Theatre and then later direct the Northern School of Contemporary Dance. But I had already done an apprentice with London Contemporary Dance Theatre, which for those people that don't know, who aren't old enough to remember, was the original resident company at the place, founded by the late and very dear Sir Robert Cohan, who's only just recently left us. I danced with that company until mm. it closed in 94, so for about 12 and a half, 13 years. And then had what I later discovered was a portfolio career. <laughs> At the time, I thought it's just survival, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, I did lots <laughs> yeah. of different, lots of different things, from running a youth dance company at Sadler's Wells to being dancing and resident at Queen's College, Cambridge. Uh, just juggling, still performing. I did a lot of work with Kim Branstrup's company, Art Dance Company, but also worked with people like Nigel Charnock and Kate Flat and Claire Russ and, you know, a whole mixture of things. Teaching was consistent though from the very start of my career. My first two weeks on a professional contract were actually in a school with London Contemporary Dance Theatre in Haven, Hampshire, on a residency. So teaching was always a passion. I suppose there was a key moment of transition around 2005 where I was still teaching. I just, at the end of 2005, I did my official swan song at the place, dancing a solo by Siobhan Davis <laughs> to the famous swan music. <laughs> but I was lucky enough to be accepted on the Claw Leadership Programme in the second cohort. And I did that over two years part time. But I was still teaching uh, at that time, was still in the studio. And then as I was finishing that programme, this job at the place came up which was a newly conceived job of chief executive. There had been a chief executive maybe about 12 years prior to that, but the organisation had lived with a very different structure in the interim with a sort of flat hierarchy at the top. And I suppose I'd never expected to go back to my alma mater <laughs> and certainly not in that role, but I did apply for it. And so I went back to the organisation that I had attended as a student and then as a dancer. And I did that role for just over nine years. And by the time I left, I think I, I figured out that all in all, but with a 12 year gap, it's 25 years of my life at the place. I remember joking at the wow. time, if I didn't leave then, I'd have to be surgically removed. <laughs> and, and then subsequent to that, I had an interim period, again, when I went back to a bit of here, there and everywhere and went back actually into the studio and choreographed a musical in South Africa and taught in Italy. But then for two years until September last year, I was director of the Africa Centre, which is a, a charity that's been going since 1964 and had moved to a new home. So that, I suppose, in a very rapid nutshell, is my sort of career path. So both of you, that echo of portfolio career has come through and that, that was quite expected, I suppose. But I wondered, was there a pivotal moment for either of you where you pressed the off switch on performance and transitioned? Or did the two worlds meld together for a while? 
Well, I think two things happened for me. I had been appointed as artistic director designate for the original National Youth Dance Company. And then in that period of sort of waiting, shouldn't get lost in the detail of it, but basically the organisation made a decision. It sort of amalgamated with Youth Dance England. And at the same time, I think the Arts Council withdrew funding. So I sort of was left without a role there. So that gave me pause for thought. And then at the same time, I think the reason I applied for the CLAW Leadership Programme was I felt after 12 years of being a freelance, I felt I'm doing all these different things. I'm hurling my energy in different directions, but I somehow perhaps wanted something that might help me draw all that knowledge and intelligence together. And plus, Kim Brownstep's company, who I'd worked with for over those 12 years, I think his company closed. And I thought, do you know what? I've done enough. I've been so right. lucky. I've worked with the most brilliant choreographers and artists. And I thought, even if I had the motivation to go and audition for another choreographer, I just thought, it's not going to lead to the next step. So I could do another contract, I could do another rehearsal period, I could go on tour again. But after that, what? So I think that was part yes. of my, those things combined was part of what led me to apply to the Call Leadership Programme. But when I did that, I had no intention to lead an organisation. That wasn't my aspiration. I just thought, I'll go back to all the different things I'm doing and do them better. So it's more of a so, sense of I mean, consolidating in a way. And I'd say probably that, you know, I don't know how Cathy's was, but it wasn't a carefully mapped out career plan. It was a, probably a mixture of following my curiosity, my passions, and then a bit of what happens to come your way and how you respond to those. So yeah. it was less by design design and more by a kind of alchemy of different things. Kath, how does that feel to you? Is that similar? Yeah, I totally agree with you, Kenneth, actually. I didn't have a career plan. My career plan was dance. <laughs> you know, as soon as I discovered it, that was it for me. I, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I mean, I did try... I did make a few pieces of work as a choreographer, but it really wasn't my passion. I found my creativity working with a choreographer rather than being the choreographer. And I think as Kenneth says, it's like you have things happen in your life and you accumulate memories and baggage and skills and opportunities come your way. So for me, there was no... I was teaching a lot as well. Even when I was director of dance in Somerset, I was teaching at the University of Bath, contemporary classes and ballet classes. And so I was still very much in the studio. Even now I do step into the studio just for feedback sessions and, mm. you know, supporting artists and things. But mm. once I moved to Brighton to Southeast Dance, the job is massive. And yes, it takes over. Yeah, I, I don't really find I have time to be following you know, my teaching passion or my studio time passion yeah, anymore. Yeah. So yeah, really, it was that the full timeness of the job in Brighton means that that's all I have time for really now. Forces you away from that portfolio and more into that structure. So I can't boast to have anything like the careers that the two of you did. But I do remember transitioning into an office and sitting at a desk and somebody asking me to send them the agenda and me not knowing what an agenda was. And people talking about things like ACE around me that I just had no clue what they were talking about. And even referring to people as practitioners, as a teacher and dancer myself, I hadn't ever called myself that. So I wanted to ask you what it felt like to you when you were in that new role, at whatever point in your career that might have been, because I know that, as you said, you've merged and melded and ducked and dived a lot. Did it ever feel uncomfortable or were there things and challenges that you needed to overcome or language that you needed to learn to be able to progress in that new position that you'd put yourself in? Kath. Do you know what? The first job that I actually had to interview for was as director of dance in Somerset. And I suddenly realised I've never done an interview before and I'm 45. <laughs> I mean, I've done loads of auditions. I said to them, you know, if you want me to get up and improv, I yeah. can do that. <laughs> but no. It's my CV and headshot. 
<laughs> so I had to sit there and have this panel of people asking me all these questions. But I just remember this time when I'm at the end of a NPO period, National Portfolio Organisation period. I know what NPO means. Now, they gave me this document and they're going, right, you're director of dance. Can you write the business plan for the next three years, please? And I was just like, I have no idea even where to start no idea. So I had to teach myself how to write a business plan that would then sit within a bigger structure of the organisational business plan. Yeah. So yeah, amazing learning curve. And again, all of those skills that you've accumulated along the way coming in, I suppose, that resourcefulness. Well, I think before I took up dancing, I was at university. I was doing a law degree, which I absolutely hated and then found my way into a dance degree. So I had a lot of understanding of the idea of argument and how to construct an argument so I just approached it from that <laughs> perspective and also my back knowledge of having submitted applications to Arts Council for the last 10-15 years for various projects so I just sort of put all of that together and went okay this could be what it looks like. Yeah and this is what it's going to look like for us actually. Yeah. <laughs> Kenneth how about you? It's interesting. Um, two very different thoughts. As Catherine was talking before, and as you were talking, Melanie, I suddenly remembered something Christopher Bruce said, the choreographer, and I don't know what had prompted this reflection, but he said, you know, when you've done a certain thing your whole life, you've done it, you know, maybe from young age, but you've danced for a whole career and you've choreographed, the idea of sort of retraining or doing something completely different is quite terrifying. And, and I think when you've been lucky, you know, exactly like Kath, I wanted to dance. I did it for 25 years. I'd have said that felt like a vocation. It wasn't just a job. It was a vocation. I wouldn't call administration for me a vocation. However, mm -hmm. I think the reason I've worked full time for two charities is because I absolutely bought into what those organisations were there to do. And it mattered enough for me to, well, you know, to step into that arena. Yes, like Kath, when I arrived at the place, I had six months for the organisation to come up with a five year business plan. And of course, I'd never done that before in that way or taken that level of responsibility. In a way, I probably find it more terrifying now than perhaps I did then. Perhaps there was a little bit of naivety, but you know, I had very good people around me who were very experienced. And so it was more about bringing that, I suppose, leadership and thought process and what would inform that. I didn't need to come up with all the answers myself. The one thing I did have under my belt when I stepped into that role at the place was I had limited experience of being education coordinator at Art Dance, but I'd also been on the board of the Royal Opera House for five years at that time, as well as, I think, before that, Dance UK and a couple of smaller organisations. And I think that maybe gave me some experience that not everyone has, and it gave me a sense of the kind of conversations that happen at board level. And I think that was probably very mm. helpful preparation for stepping into a chief executive role. So I was very grateful for that. It's quite a learning thing, isn't it, when you step into those roles and realise that actually you don't have to know all the answers. You just have to know how to choose a good team and other people are meant to know the answers and tell you. I don't know if you feel the same as I do sometimes, but I sometimes feel like I have to do it all because <laughs> that's how I got there. Because you were running around doing it all and actually being able to say, actually, it's not mine to do. I, I can just look at others or help others do it. I don't have to be doing it all myself. Now, you were talking about the claw, and I'm interested in this because a lot of people do use the claw to transition over. You know, it's a famous, it's lauded. And I wondered, Kenneth, what your biggest takeaways from that course were, if you can remember. Well, going back to when I exited in 2007, it feels like a long time ago. I mean, look, the shorter answer was probably we came into contact with so many brilliant leaders of very different kinds, you know, not people even just working in the arts sector, but very different kinds of people from all walks of life. And I think the one thing, if I was to generalise from all of that, was there is no one style of leadership. Everyone does it 
differently. And I suppose in the end, you realize it's about being authentic and true to your own set of values. So it's not like you can just pluck a template off a pair and put it on like a coat. I suppose that was probably the biggest thing. But I think one of the other unexpected joys and real benefits of that program was yeah, and alongside the, the opportunities it gave us was the sort of camaraderie of 26 other Claw Fellows, all from very different kinds of organisations, from the Imperial War Museum to opera directors to other dance people through to curators, librarians. And that created a sort of pool of knowledge, but also a network. And we mm. still remain in contact and occasionally have reunion. And I suppose feeling that was a huge bonus and benefit from the mm. Claw. I mean, the one thing I would say was it's not a management course. Although you could have undertaken management training as part of it. It was a leadership course, and so that is slightly different. Mm. But, you know, the CLAW has got an amazing reputation. I don't know anyone who hasn't taken great value from that experience. And I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast about Laura, and so I'm thinking a lot about her as I ask you questions and thinking about what she might want me to ask you. And I suppose one of the things from that is actually building a network around you, but cross-art form perhaps is what you're saying there, that it's enriching you because you've got lots of different perspectives around you that you've been able to draw on. I think sometimes talking to someone who's not immersed in the day-to-day challenges that you're facing is helpful because many of the challenges that you face in any cultural organisation, there's going to be a lot of overlap but in any organization you know even even outside the cultural sector a lot of the challenges you face may have different nuances but they're often fundamentally there's some level in which they're the same and I think sometimes being able to talk to someone with a bit more detachment can help you to see things a little bit more clearly because sometimes you get right in the nub of something you're so caught up in it it's hard sometimes to see the wood for the trees so to speak Mm. and Kath you've done very well without Claw thank you very much like an amazing career that you've just grabbed and got hold of with both hands where have you turned to for training and guidance as you have moved through all of those different roles I'm very lucky to have a number of who also used to be dancers, people who've moved into coaching and opportunities there for conversations outside of any formal structures. And that's been fantastic. Some of my board members as well, Mm. who I've known for years, um, they just happened to be on the board when I joined the organisation. They're also fantastic because they know the organisation. And if there's any concerns, I can talk to them. But outside of that, there's a number of people who I've met along the way who sort of moved with me out of dancing into producing and other leadership roles and we're still all connected so whilst they're not like close friends they're really good colleagues and have a real understanding of where I am and what I'm doing so I find that really helpful just those casual conversations and glass of wine and chat (laughs) sometimes just coming out of your world and uh, seeing somebody else's world and then looking back into your own from that perspective is so I was about to say thrilling but nothing in this pandemic feels very thrilling right now but just a bit of a salve. There's one other thing that's just come to mind look this morning at 8 30 a.m I was in a breakfast meeting called what next and this is a conversation basically that's been going on amongst people in the cultural sector for over 10 years now I think it was there right at the beginning and of course pre-pandemic they were face to face and during the course of a number of years This was a sort of movement that ended up by having what they call chapters, but different versions, similar meetings happening across the country. So I think there are now over 30 chapters. And this is really an ongoing conversation around the cultural sector, but a meeting point of minds, I suppose, just to face the challenges together. And what's been brilliant about it is it's never been about anyone fighting their own organisation or their own corner. It's really about 
what are the big issues that we're all facing? How do we tackle all these different things? And as an intelligence pool, it's been brilliant. And I'd say for anyone who thought it's just a talking shop, no. Mm. It's done some very, very practical things. The whole BBC Creative, which was about encouraging creativity in the general public, came out of direct conversations in that room. And back in 2015, when George Osborne, when he was Chancellor, when he protected the Arts Council's funding, when everything else was being cut, we know that that was the direct result of, I think, conversations that were happening in What Next, the Creative Indies Federation and the Arts Council, and joining those together and talking strategically in, in small lobbying groups to the right people behind closed doors. What's been brilliant about the pandemic, not about the pandemic, but as a result of the pandemic, What Next has obviously gone online. Uh, the meetings have been happening fortnightly now. But, you know, I think it was one meeting when Keir Starmer was in the room. I think it was like over 500 people in the room. It may have been 700. Being able to be part of a national conversation is fantastic. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying in a long-winded way is it can be about other individuals, but sometimes it's also about being part of those networks. Yes. And being part of broader conversations that help you give you entirely different perspectives, which is great. brainstorming collective. Yeah, and I'd also say that we have a chapter in Brighton and we meet weekly, and that's been fantastic to have that sort of direct conversation with City Council and the Area Director of Arts Council. But also the National Dance Network is a fantastic group of all of the organisations that support artist development and production. And that's a chance for leaders of those organisations just to bear all and really talk about what the issues are and how they're coping with things. And that went online and suddenly we had more attendance than we've ever had before. Yeah. So I think there are some really positive things that we want to hang on to coming out of the pandemic. Definitely. There's been a behavioural shift, hasn't there, in audiences and ourselves and the way we do our work. It's interesting to think about how many meetings will go back to being live and how many will stay online for that reason. So one of the frustrations that I alluded to in my intro that Laura told me that she experienced was in that feeling that she had to go back and start from the beginning. And you picked up on this already, Kenneth, with that anecdote from Christopher Bruce. But she felt that her experience as a performer, teacher and a mother didn't count for anything as she started knocking on completely different doors. And I wondered whether that felt true for you and how you might have used Again, Kath, you also mentioned this when you started speaking about your life experience. How have you used that to solve a problem, meaning that you don't have to go back and learn from the rule book, but just apply your common sense, perhaps? Gosh, that's a big question to ask without any prep. <laughs> I think that there's always a challenge, and I hear this from producers a lot, around how to get access to the right people in venues. I mean, it's a big thing now as well, that idea of tour booking. But I just remember from my years of touring that every venue we would meet all of the venue teams and staff. I would use that relationship yeah. when I needed to speak to someone. So that previous history as a dancer, I brought to the front and used it yes. because it was a way of knowing who to speak yeah. to. That's not really answered your question at all. No, it has. You've drawn upon networks that you built within that performance world and also perhaps the persona that you have as a performer, which would be confident and you know not scared of coming forward. And then in that other role, you have to draw on those skills and those feelings in order to get through those right doors, ask those right questions. Now, I, I recognise that. Kenneth, how about you? It's a great question and a bit like Kathy. It's not an easy one to answer because I think part of what we've learnt by being dancers is so innate to who we are that we probably don't think about it mm. all the time. It's just part of 
how we engage. But I would say, I think one of the things that artists deal with, and I've, I guess we've both experienced this firsthand in dance, is all creative acts and creative process deals with a huge amount of uncertainty. You don't know where it's going to end up. <laughs> and I think when you've lived through that process with different choreographers and had completely different experiences and come out at the other end, I think that for me is when people talk about resilience what does it mean that's one example for me of resilience because you learn to keep the trust in the process and to live through those uncomfortable moments where you just don't quite know or it doesn't feel right you're uncertain and i think many people i know in dance have extraordinary stamina tenacity resilience creativity you know courage but just dealing with uncertainty and aren't just gonna throw their hands in the air in complete despair they'll go, no, there'll be a way through it. I'd be very surprised if that wasn't the same for Kath too. Mm. I mean, if you were saying directly and maybe literally how has my experience as a performer maybe impacted on, say, my role as a director, I can think of one perhaps slightly amusing example. When I was invited to speak at the sister school of the boys' school I went to in Cambridge. I went to the Perth school, sister school called Stephen Perth. So, you know, here I am, I'm going to speak at speech day and they're going to be all the governors and all the parents and all the teachers there. And I made this decision. <laughs> <laughs> that I wouldn't speak from my mouth for the first seven and a half minutes. Now, it kind of sounds a bit ridiculous, doesn't it? I had prepared a PowerPoint <laughs> and it's actually it started with a piece of film and then the PowerPoint read, hello, I'm Kenneth, I'm chief executive of the place and no, I haven't lost my voice, but, you know, dot, dot, dot. And I led them through this journey and at first I was monitoring people's faces <laughs> very closely and I could see people looking a bit uncertain, but I led them through this journey where, you know, I was, I was joking with them about they've probably already made lots of decisions about me, my hair, what I'm wearing, my shoes, how I walk. But I said that I was also looking at them and how they're sitting. And by the way, you really should think of carrying a bag on both shoulders because you're sitting lopsided and, you, you know, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it, it got to the point where I finally spoke. And with huge relief, because by that time I knew they were still with me because there'd been a lot of laughter. And when I think back to that, I think, I wouldn't have had the courage or maybe even the idea to do that if I hadn't sort of been relying somewhat on my performance instinct. There was a small bit of me that was terrified. I thought, what if I've misjudged this? What if I've just misjudged my ability to carry that off yeah. or misjudged people's ability to engage with that kind of slightly different way of approach? Yeah. I mean, what fueled it was I just thought, oh God, you know, <laughs> another person to stand up, give the same old stuff in the same old way. How can I just bring something different to the table that speaks more to who I am and where I've come from? Yes. Fortunately, I survived it and it did work. And actually, I did go on to do a similar thing on a couple of other occasions, like for Google at a Black History Month and in Thomson Reuters. I think that was relying on my performer's instinct of what it's like to sit in the audience as another person takes the stage, yes. whether to speak or to dance. Yeah. And so that's a very literal answer to your question. No, I think it's incredible. And it reminds me of, I hope you don't mind if I tell a little story of my own, of when I applied for, I think, my second desk job and I was asked to bring a presentation and I didn't know how to use PowerPoint, but I was really interested in property and I'd just done a little interior design course. So I used the storyboarding skills they taught us at this interior design course to make this kind of polyboard. The project was called Next Steps. So I put plaster on my feet and I actually did steps on this board painted it all then made these little labels that you'd see in an exhibition about what I thought the next steps for this project should be and and I turned up at the interview this great big thing and I remember afterwards Fiona Ross said to me you were the weakest candidate on paper because you had no experience whatsoever but you were the best one in the room because I drew upon that performance I put a little scarf on so I felt like somebody else that might have an office job <laughs> you know I put this whole persona <laughs> together and there I stood with this polycarbonate presentation because I didn't know how to use the computer it's just hilarious but we do pull on those skills don't we and they either work or they don't but actually you've lost nothing from trying so 
both of you, I think, through your careers seem to me to have also not only did you transition from dance into a existing job, but you've both had experience of making those jobs. And Kathy said that that's been kind of inherent in how you've approached dancing. You've just made the opportunities for yourself. Kenneth, you started up a company called Artifarty Arts and Kathy, danceservice.co.uk. And I wondered, was that a way of you creating a job for yourself and a role that fitted you and your skills? Or was that a gap in the market, a business move, or was it a sort of value-based move where you thought, actually, this thing is missing and I need to somehow fill it? What was the inspiration between both of you making those roles for yourself? I think for me, Artifarty Arts, I was working with a composer called Simon Redfern. We'd originally met as gamelan players at the South Bank and then went on to collaborate on several pieces together. But actually, I never had the intention to start a company. So on paper, it looks like perhaps I did. But the reason I didn't want to start a company was because I was still fresh from London Contemporary Dance Theatre. And my sense of what a company meant was something bigger, right. more structured. And, yeah. and I wasn't after doing that. We just wanted to make work together and collaborate. But we realised we needed an identity when we worked together. That was why we coined that name. We tried to work our way through all sorts of very worthy sounding names that we just, in the end, binned. And we went for the one that just made us smile. And I still have that in my email address. <laughs> um. <laughs> when I set up the dance service, what it came out of is I had had a period of maternity leave from the birth of my first daughter. And it was just when the internet was starting. And I was in the process of saying to myself, right, you've got a daughter, she's going to be a millennial, you've got to learn what this computer world internet thingy is. So I taught myself HTML, taught myself how to build a website. And because my passion has always been dance, and I see work and involved in it, I noticed there was no no dance presence at all on the internet. So I thought, ah, oh, that's what I'll do. So I started putting up information, what's coming up. I started reviewing shows, made some small websites for Mark Baldwin when he had his company. So we did Mark's first website, hosted it on the dance service. We did Chris Nash's first ever photography website. So it came out of my passion for dance, but also my understanding of where the world right. was going and we needed to get on board yeah. with that back in the early 90s so yeah we had the first sort of dance information website in the UK that went for quite a number of years but once I got back into full-time dancing again it started to taper down and then londondance.com came into play so we were like right there's professionals <laughs> up there doing it now so we'll leave it to them. That's amazing Kathy. that is incredible and did you say early 90s? Yeah. See I didn't own my first laptop until 2000 so you were well ahead of the game Kathy. that I'm so impressed that's that's terrific. Early adopter. <laughs> <laughs> my, dad, my dad's an engineer, so he had a, a Commodore 64 back in the 80s when I was doing my degree and I would go around and use it. So, yeah, I've been around technology. And so when my daughter was born in 94, actually, we went to Curry's and bought this big lumpy thing <laughs> with a massive monitor that's like three feet deep and yeah just got on with figuring it out really. I wonder if some of that is coming into play like you say your father was an engineer and you just come from a place of problem solving which is what we do actually isn't it in our roles now. Now I asked my team to come up with some questions for this podcast and that I've got a couple of ex-dancers in the team I don't know which one of them came up with it it touched something in me it was at any point along the way, have you felt that anyone doubted your ability because you hadn't gone through a traditional academic route? Or perhaps has the opposite been true, that there's been kudos because of your amazing performance 
careers. And I wondered which of those had been true for you, or perhaps they both are at different points. Do you know who the biggest doubter was for my dancing was myself, because I came at it so late and always felt I needed to catch up right through my career. And then the biggest doubter when I moved into producing was also myself because I had no formal training or even an MA or anything in producing. I had nothing. But there was kudos from my performing career in the UK. So when I went back to people to talk about things, they would know who I was. So that broke the ice already and they understood that I'd worked at a certain level. Yeah, I think I was my own worst enemy, even though I consider myself like overly confident. Not not backward and coming <laughs> forward, shall I say. So, yeah, and quite happy to be knocked back, but get up and yeah. try again. You know, that's what dancing is, isn't it? Every day you do the same thing over and over because it could be yeah. better. Could be better, could be different, could be more nuanced. So that's how I approach yeah. my work now. Even when you're knocked back for funding or knocked back for whatever, you think... What could I have done better yes. here? And let's try again. Always trying to get better. And Kenneth, you brought up that resilience thing as well. You know, how resilient dancers and performers have to be and then the way you bring that through. What's your response to that question, Kenneth? Again, it's a great question. I think all human beings have doubt of some kind at some point. I think I learned to cope with them as a dancer. I think the more experience you get as a dancer, the more you're able to ride that wave and you perhaps spend less energy worrying. I remember one of the things that the late Sir Robert Cohen used to say to us as dancers sometimes, he said, if there's something you can do about the thing you're worrying about, go and do it. If there's nothing you can do, Mm -hmm. stop worrying. It was a great piece of advice. I'd say perhaps in the latter part of my career, being on the other side and not being a performer, if people had doubts about me, then perhaps they were kind enough not necessarily to throw them in my face. But I think at the same time, you know, when I remember going to the place when I started, I wanted to meet the whole organisation and to say, hello, I'm here. This is a bit about how I want to go about things. And I realised that before I even stepped through the door, that that's bringing people from different parts of the organisation who were on very different timetables. It was just not going to happen. I did manage to achieve that, I think, in my last 18 months at the place. I think we managed to arrange it so the organisation could come together for an hour at a time for maybe five times a year. So I did get there, but it took nine years. Um, But instead, I I remember writing a letter to the organisation. And I, I remember one of the elements was just that I didn't expect, even coming in as chief executive, that all the good ideas and the good answers would come from me. I felt it was really important that they should filter up through the organisation that part of my role was to try and harness that. And I guess if you went in with the expectation that it was all about you and that all the important decisions were about you, then I suspect that's perhaps a recipe for disaster or failure, not a very good way to bring people on board or utilise the strength of an organisation. I'm interested in that though, Kenneth, because, and I'm going to be a bit generalised here, but in dance... The hierarchy of dancer and choreographer, it often, I mean, it's moving, but when we look back, it used to be there, didn't it? You know, the choreographer would set the steps and the dancers obediently did them. Do you think that that wasn't true of London Contemporary Dance Theatre and ARC and the experiences you've had, and so therefore you brought a more collaborative approach that we do see much more in choreographers now, but... It's a great question. I think that collaborative thing has changed in my career in my lifetime but I think it was even there before and even if you talk to people who work with Sir Frederick Ashton in the Royal Ballet they will tell you from their first-hand experience it was much more iterative than one 
might have imagined okay. from the outside. But certainly, I think, even before I stopped dancing, you know, lots of choreographers, I mean, Kathy, you will have worked with some of them, people like Finn Walker and others, mm. who, you know, their process was mm. so collaborative to the extent which they would probably write made in collaboration with the dancers. Because, because it, it was. absolutely was. And so I think whether you've been involved directly in that process or you've witnessed it or you've, you know, I think even with London Contemporary, you know, we worked with so many different choreographers, no one process was the same. But however it was, it felt iterative. Yeah. And it wasn't just about responding to instructions or darling I want two of those and one of those and just give yes. it to me like that. <laughs> I think I would have stepped out of dance much earlier if I hadn't felt that one was involved in a sort of intelligent conversation of where, where everyone brings something to the table. So you have brought that approach then from that experience that you've had dancing then too? I guess so. I'd not thought about that direct relationship Maybe. but I guess so. Interesting and actually as we think about you as young dancers for a moment here and I'm thinking now of, of the dancers that are out there listening to this I wondered whether now that you're in a position of authority and you will have had many experiences on the other side of the desk auditioning dancers or artists or, or perhaps not auditioning but looking at commissions and proposals is there something that you wish you knew about what it feels like to be this side of the desk that you wish you'd known when you were the other side of the desk oh gosh another another top question thanks very much <laughs> you're welcome i think understanding that they're human you know, the people who are at the top of these organisations, they're all human. They all have human quirks and pressures on them. And, you know, they're not going to get everything right. I certainly don't get everything right. And that's something that I'm definitely trying to bring to my role is that very open, here I am, you know, my email's on my website, on yeah. the Southeast Arts website. So people, please, you know, people can get in touch. And I want all of our team to be that sort of human-centred approach so that we're not sort of some, well, we're not a building yet, but yes. you know, we're not walled yeah, off yeah. from people. And we hope that we're approachable. And I think that that would have been something good to know when I was younger. Yeah, yeah, I can understand what you're saying there. Kenneth, how about you? I'm struggling with this one. It's a great question. Uh, well, I'll try. I don't know if I can articulate quite what's in my head because I don't think it's fully formed. But I think as an older person looking at younger people, I guess there's a kind of... Envy makes it sound too loaded emotionally. But, you know, there is something about the energy of a young person who has so much before them. I suppose I just want to see young people be as bold and courageous and as uniquely them as they can be without feeling that they have to necessarily be obedient or please older people like me. And I'm not saying that I'm a repressed rebel or as a young person I was a repressed rebel. I don't think I necessarily was but perhaps I don't know it sounds like I'm talking with regret I'm not but I'm just musing I suppose from where I am now I'd want to encourage any young person just to not think that there's yeah. a template to not think that you have to do it like that person or how it's already been done because young people today are living in a completely different world yeah. but you know I'm half Nigerian I understand respect for the elders so it's not about disrespect for the elders but on the other hand don't let that respect be stifling in such a way that you cannot have the confidence to carve out your own unique pathway, have your own unique voice, whether as an artist or just as a person, and be bold enough to do something that's maybe going to change the world. So I've not quite answered your question. I, I suppose um, perhaps if someone had said to me, look, just do it and don't worry about it so much, whether I'd have done something different, I, who knows? 
Thinking about that question I asked you, I know one of the things that has occurred to me being on this side is I urge dancers proposing a a project to us or applying to a commission call out about being specific about what it is they're going to do. We get so many that have got lots and lots of really beautiful words, but I read them going, I don't know what it is. I don't know what the thing is. I wish I had thought about that from that side of things. Actually, interesting, Mel. I know Kath will probably had to feel through many more application things than I have over the years, but I do remember at some point in my career when I was reading through extensive applications for something. I remember the ones that I struggled to be convinced by were the ones that would tell me what a piece was going to look like before they'd started the process. Right. That's a generalisation, but by and large, those are the ones I struggled with. The ones that actually I found was most compelled by and I felt were most honest were the ones that told me very specifically, <laughs> so I'm borrowing your word, very specifically what question they were holding up. Yes, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. What was the key thing that was fueling their artistic purpose without having to tell me the curtain's going to go up and it's going to look like it was there, that I found... Yeah, what, what the outcome yeah. was. Um, so I guess I'm agreeing with you with the specificity, but I guess in that particular context, I, I was more, if someone was asking the right questions, they were more likely to come up with a good answer. That's interesting too. The process and, and being able to articulate that process is really fascinating, isn't it? This is going off tangent with the subject of the podcast. It feels very scary when you're commissioning and you're putting that money in and you've got somebody waiting, your funder, your board, whoever it is for this big thing. But so many times I have to tell myself, I trust this artist. I know this artist is going to deliver And I'm at that point on the process where I can't see what they can see, but I know they'll get there. And and that's come true a couple of times. So now I believe it enough to just go, it's all right. I'm just in my funny moment. And I just, you know, give the artist some time and all will become clear. And that's true, actually, Melanie, because as dancers, we've been through that. Because, you know, when you go into the studio and the choreographer says, this is today's task and this is why you're doing the task. And, And after a period of, weeks or months you don't know what the end result's going to be you just have to trust in the process of that artist who knows why they're asking you to do what they're doing and in the end you end up with something that fabulously addresses the investigation yeah. so yeah there's that trust I think in what's being investigated rather than what an outcome would be yeah because then you know you can have that conversation with that person. If you trust that person, you know everything will be okay because you get to a problem and you can talk it through. It's been quite a learning curve for me and it's always exciting. So a very quick one. Do you have any role models? Was there anyone as you were going through this process that you looked up to and thought, that's what I want to do? I think the person other than my parents, who particularly at the start of my career, but was a presence throughout my whole life until very recently, who probably had influenced me more and shaped me more in my thinking and being as a dancer was Sir Robert Cohan. He was such an extraordinary man. And the fact that he was still choreographing at 95, (laughs) you know, even during the pandemic, he was still choreographing online and making these film solos. Such an extraordinary human being, it's difficult to sum up in a couple of pithy sentences, but I know that many of the dancers who worked with him, I can remember Christopher Bannerman saying this, I think around Bob's 80th birthday, he didn't just teach us how to dance, he taught us how to be. Now I know out of context and without knowing the person, and that can sound a bit glib and overblown, but actually for me it was true. He taught me just in who he was, his approach, his breadth of knowledge that he always had to draw on, which was way beyond just dance. I think he gave us tools for going forward and becoming independent later on beyond his company. I suppose that name just comes to mind very immediately because he was such an extraordinary human being and, you know, left such a legacy and such an imprint on so many people's lives in different ways. So I'm very, very grateful the fact that Bob was part of my life for 42 years. 
And such a recent loss to the dance world. Yeah. Kat, how about you? I didn't spend that long a time with... I've moved around a lot from company to company. I guess someone that I was quite in awe of was Elizabeth Dolman Wilson, who set up Australian Dance Theatre back in, I think it was the 70s. And she's another one who, if there's not something there, let's make mm. it. And I thought that was fantastic. I really appreciated her energy about making something happen. And then there's been other women along the way who I've sort of looked at and gone, wow, she's really doing it and she's just making it happen. So, yeah, I don't think there's one in particular for me. That's right. And Kennedy, you're about to say something. Well, I was going to say for me as a young ballet dancer before I switched to contemporary, if I'd been looking for people that looked like me, I was shortchanged. I couldn't see any. Mm. You know, we're talking pre-internet, pre-YouTube. So all I had were mm. copies of the Dancing Times, Dance and Dancers, and I confess a few Princess Tina ballet albums <laughs> to look at pictures. And all the dancers of colour who I saw were either doing, you know, Ippy Tombi or perhaps Alvin Ailey, even London Contemporary, but there were no ballet dancers that were visible. Yeah. So I guess at that age, whilst I might have wanted it, I couldn't relate to Romos in that way. I just thought, oh, that is a fabulous dancer. You know, I saw Nurev on film. I want to be as good as that. But I guess as you get older, and maybe even as a younger person, for me, role models don't have to be in the same art form. No. You can be influenced powerfully by someone's outlook on the world. But there is something very particular about dance in the way that it is such a human art form in that although books are written about dance, the way knowledge about dancing is passed on from person to person in the studio, I suppose everyone who's taught us has probably in some way left a trace, mm. some bigger than others, some that we remember, some where that trace has been absorbed so much, perhaps we've forgotten where that originated. The only comparison I can ever really think of is a bit like the way the West African griots, the knowledge either about the playing of the Kora or the wisdom, ancestral knowledge is passed on orally. You know, as dancers, I think one of the things we're all grateful for is that humanness about the way it is passed on. And I think it means that we value very much the people who've made an impact on us. Yeah, yeah. And the creativity, I think, that dancers and performers seem to show in whatever transitioning, if that is the right word, that they make as they navigate this portfolio career. I don't know many dancers that don't have something like a portfolio career. We've talked about the pandemic in this podcast already, and I think whilst freelance artists have had such a hard time of it, their resilience and their ability to jump from one job to another has been a skill they've been able to draw on, which perhaps other professions might not have had. I wish they hadn't had to do that, but I feel that they have had something that perhaps we didn't even recognise in them before, that kind of sheer grit. But the very last question I have for you, do you still dance for recreation? Is it still a part of your life physically? It is for me, absolutely, yes. Yeah. There's something yeah. about the energy you get from dancing to music or to rhythm with other people. It's just incredibly energising and, yeah, I come out of every class on a high and having shared that moment with the other people in the room. It's been difficult over the last 11 months because we've been doing it on Zoom, so you still get to move to music, but it's not that shared yeah. experience. You know, the idea of doing a Kaylee or some American and line dancing really appeals yeah. to me at the moment you know and I just absolutely love that sort of communal dancing so yeah I do, do still. still do it I think my body would fall apart if I didn't have some yeah. physical practice how about you Kenneth I guess I don't in the way that Kath described I've done two projects though 
for older dancers, one in 2014 and one in 2017. And the 2014 one was when Sadler's Wells launched this thing called the Elixir Festival. And they approached a load of former professionals. And I was one of the babies. I was still in my 50s then. <laughs> and we were basically said, you know, would we come out of retirement to work with Jonathan Burroughs, the choreographer, and Matteo Vargin, the composer? I felt a bit like the scientist and the object of the experiment at the same time, because I thought for the first time in my life, I'm going back to something. Because mm. I couldn't remember not dancing. And here I was having sat behind a desk for n number of years and going oh my god what's it going to be like going back into the studio it was brilliant we had a most amazing time and then we did another project in 2017 with annie b parsons i've also done two very small bits in film i did a little bit in the mamma mia here we go oh, again did you? Number, working with auntie van Lars, which was great fun and it was not physically taxing and then i think even in 2019 i think it was i worked with kate prince who's been choreographing the channel 4 film version of everyone's talking about jamie so did a couple of days on that yeah but beyond that actually i think on a regular basis i transferred my need and i totally empathize with what Kathy says you know I need a physical element to my life I've probably transferred what I got from dance into running around a tennis court for yeah. quite a number of hours a week and sea kayaking <laughs> and both of which I can see I draw on some of my dance knowledge and skill you know being able to read a tennis court even at my old age I can cover ground quite quickly um, <laughs> and in a sea kayak balancing is a dynamic thing yeah and, you're um, drawing have on. You see, Kathy do you see kayak no 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 I have done in the past but you're kidding it's England it's freezing <laughs> If you wear the right gear, you know, and if it's really cold, you know, you wear, you don't get cold because most of you is under the kayak and you can just wear, you know, the dry stuff on top. But it is like dancing in the sense that balance is a dynamic thing. So you're constantly adjusting and reading the water and feeling it. And two, if you're in really demanding conditions, when you've got big waves and there's a danger of capsizing, it forces you into like performance mode. In other words, you're totally present and you don't even have to think about it because you just know that your survival depends on it. I'm not an adrenaline junkie, but that's just about the right <laughs> level of adrenaline for me to sort of feel alive and not feel that I'm about to give myself a heart attack. <laughs> I do remember when I was at the place, wasn't it the 30th anniversary at that or time? the 40th, 40th. Yes. And you, Eddie Nixon and Richard Alston did a piece. And I remember sitting in the auditorium then and feeling very proud to be working in an organisation where the three heads of state of the organisation were performing. I do remember that. And that was an amazing piece by Victoria Marks, the Canadian choreographer, that was originally performed and made for all women. And I remember seeing it with Jane Dudley, who was head of contemporary studies, and Judith Knight, who was the head of music and the head accompanist, and Louise MacDonald, and then yeah. the youngest member, Ruth. She was a student at the time when that was first performed, and she came back and she taught it to us. And I do remember during the rehearsal, process it was all about counts and turning and heads mm. and she had meticulously outlined everybody's counts on an excel sheet and i remember the experience of being in the studio having to go and check the counts but having to go and put my glasses on to do it and i thought okay that's a first that's a sign of age well a sign of age i think that feels like a good place to stop if you'd like to hear more episodes about subjects moving artists of today search for talking moves wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to subscribe leave a review and spread the word and for more information about kath and kenneth head on over to greenwichdance.org.uk and do remember that if you know someone you think we should talk to or have a topic you'd like us to talk about please tweet us at Greenwich Dance but for today that's it from us and do join us next time for more Talking Moves. Thank you so much I feel absolutely humbled to be in your presence <laughs> and I can tell you that you're both role models of mine so thank well, you for being with us. It's lovely to chat. Oh, it's been great fun.